There's so much we can learn about ourselves when we think about trees. Did you know that in Psalm 1, God says you shall be like a tree? When we follow Jesus, it begins when we are like a tiny seed or a sapling, firmly planted and too weak to stand on its own. As we grow up in the truth, we send our roots down. They keep us fed and strong. But beware, becoming what God created us to be isn't always easy. There are bad forces that work against us, and it takes faith and discipline to get through them. But once you mature and discover your gifts, you grow fruit. Delicious fruit that you can share with everyone around you. And there's nothing more beautiful than watching how your life, which started out as a little seed, can multiply into the lives of others. This could be you, a majestic tree, going deep, growing wide, living tall, and bearing lots and lots of fruit. We are so excited to continue our spiritual formation series today. As you know, we're unpacking this image of a tree, and what we've said is that the tree is God's ultimate object lesson for what he wants us, his people, to become like. And we've divided this sermon series into these 12 rules. Uh, last week, we talked about uh, rule number one, which has to do with the authority of the Word of God. And uh, today, we're entering into rule number two, which is really the ultimate Word of God, the Word with a capital W, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, and of course, His, His gospel. And remember, last week, we talked about being good soil. And this is, of course, uh, so relevant here. So rule number two is as follows. We need to embrace the seed of the gospel every day. It's the key to everything. As I begin the topic this morning, let me tell you about a historic church which had inscribed on the side of their building the words of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. Uh, they had this historic downtown campus and uh, on, on the side of the wall there were just these four words, we preach Christ crucified. We preach Christ crucified. Uh, but over time, what happened uh, was that uh, ivy, which had been growing around the foundation of that church, had kind of grown up the side of the wall and had uh, basically obscured the last word in that statement so that the sign now read, we preach Christ. And then over time, without anybody in the church really noticing, the ivy continued to grow up over the wall so that it covered the next to last word in that sentence so that the passerby now would only read two words, we preach. My friends, that's a sad parable of the contemporary church. There is no shortage of preaching and preachers, but Christ crucified is obscured and in some places, it is conspicuously absent. A person can attend some churches for weeks, months, even years, and hear lots of messages on handling finances and marriage skills and physical healing or personal success or relational connection or social justice or partisan politics and many, many, many other subjects without ever hearing one clear presentation of Christ crucified. Now, some churches don't abandon the message of the gospel intentionally, uh, it's really more subtle than that, more often than not, kind of like ivy growing up the side of the wall. But the results are still very far-reaching and significant. Uh, we're in this spiritual formation series on discipleship, and almost everybody agrees that the church should be about making disciples. It's like universal. You say, we need to make disciples. Every leader, every pastor goes, yeah. Uh, but Dallas Willard wrote a book called The Great Omission a number of years ago, indicating that we're not actually doing a great job at following the great commission, and we're not really making disciples, which is concerning. The most significant command of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, is something that we're not really doing. And Dallas Willard said, uh, the reason is all related to the gospel that we teach and we understand. The making of the disciples is way downstream from the gospel that these churches are proclaiming. And so what exactly is the gospel? That's a fundamental question, a foundational question. And if we get that wrong, it really doesn't matter what else we get right, right? Paul said in Galatians chapter 1, if, if anybody else, even an angel from heaven, preaches a different gospel than the one we already preached to you, let them be accursed. So this is serious. 
Author and discipleship expert Bill Hull says, it matters what our gospel is greatly when it comes to spiritual formation, because what we believe about the gospel affects how we go about making disciples. Uh, Whatever gospel we preach, it creates a certain kind of culture, and then that culture creates a certain kind of methodology for making uh, disciples. Let me see if I can give you an example just as an extreme example so that this will become readily obvious. Many of you are familiar with the the infamous church, Westboro Baptist Church, uh, and they're the group that would, of course, protest military veteran uh, funerals and so forth, and, you know, they were on the news all the time, that kind of thing. Uh, That group actually claimed to follow Jesus. Uh, But that teaching in that church created a certain kind of culture, and then that created a certain kind of disciple. You see how it works? So let me just give you a few examples. Let's say if you have a very legalistic gospel. Well, if you have a legalistic gospel, that's going to create a certain kind of culture and a certain kind of disciple. Somebody who's a little bit more smug and has a little bit more of a swagger, and there's some arrogance there. Or if you have a consumeristic kind of gospel which says it's all about me. Well, that's going to create a certain kind of culture in that church, and that's going to create a certain kind of disciple, somebody who's a little bit more self-indulgent. And so we have churches and people trying to make disciples, but they're starting with the wrong gospel. And if you start with a wrong gospel, you're never going to make it. Another example, let's just call the forgiveness-only gospel. This is the idea that the gospel is just about, about making a decision to trust Christ and receive him and and getting saved. And so we ask people, when did you get saved? Well, April 10th, 1983. I wrote it in my Bible. That's it. That's the thing. I came forward. I raised my hand. I prayed the prayer with the pastor. But there's no emphasis here on living for Christ and the new kind of life. Now, placing our faith in Christ at the beginning is essential. I don't want to take away from that decision at all. But that's not the finish line. That's the starting line. And that kind of gospel will create a kind of passivity in that church. Then, fourthly, there's the liberal gospel. That's another kind of gospel. I do not mean liberal in the sense of politics, so don't get me in trouble here. I mean theologically liberal. This is the gospel that was championed by Harry Emerson Fosdick and Union Theological Seminary. And their key issue was relevance. And so what they would do is that because the culture was not necessarily tender towards the doctrines of Christianity, they would let go of certain key doctrines like the resurrection or the virgin birth or the inerrancy of the scriptures. And sometimes it's not really that drastic. Sometimes it's just more of like a reinterpretation of those things. And so human sexuality or the existence of hell or uh, the issue of exclusivity, who's in, who's out. All of those things get reinterpreted, and then anybody who claims to know anything is considered to be arrogant. Well, that's a certain kind of gospel, and that's going to that's gonna create a certain kind of disciple that might be more often willing to let go of some truth. And then we have the particularly popular gospel in our day, the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel is the gospel that essentially says that God guarantees you as a believer to be healthy and to be wealthy. And if you would just name it and claim it and have the faith to have those things, uh, you would have them too. And, and this is a certain part of the charismatic movement, not all charismatic churches, but a portion of them. Well, this kind of gospel is going to create a certain kind of disciple that might feel a little bit more entitled. And so you see what I'm saying. The different kind of gospels are going to create a different kind of culture, and they're going to create a different kind of disciple. And so this morning, we have to ask a very important question. What is the biblical gospel, and how do we answer that? Well, today, to ask and answer that crucial question, you can join me in the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. The context of this book is that Peter, the apostle, was speaking to a persecuted church in the first century. They were surrounded, like us, by a culture that was not necessarily tender towards the message of Christianity, and they had very different values Uh, than those who were in the church had. And so Peter is writing them to show his audience how they might uh, embrace and live out the gospel and how the gospel uh, affects the way that they live towards those around them. And so to begin today, I want to read a longer portion of the scriptures with you. And it's in 1 Peter 1, verse 3, all the way through 2, verse 10. And uh, so I would invite you to just uh, listen carefully. In fact, if you're able, I would invite you to stand in honor of uh, reading God's Word today. If you're able, let's stand and let's uh, listen to this together. 
Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls." Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with great care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, Live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourself by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for your word, that it is a lamp for our feet and a light unto our path. We pray that you'd open our eyes, that we might see wonderful things in your word. Give us eyes to see and faith to obey your word with our whole hearts. Help me to preach your word with clarity, wisdom, passion, and freedom. And as the seed of the word is planted and watered today, we look to you to have this seed bear fruit. We give you all the glory and the honor for your great work of spiritual formation. Amen. You may be seated.
If you have your workbook, turn to page 36 so you can take notes on the message today if you'd like to do that. In this longer passage, I realize that was a lot. I want to just point out six characteristics of the gospel to you, six different characteristics of the gospel. But before we get to characteristic number one, I want to define two different terms. The first one was found in chapter one, verse 23, where you may have noticed that the apostle Peter referred to the gospel as a seed. It's a seed which grows to eternal life for the one who receives and obeys in faith. Last week, we talked about the importance of the seed of the word of God. And here we see that the gospel is the ultimate seed of the word of God. The seed with a capital S. The word seed in this passage is the word spora and generally refers to the seed of a plant. It is the planted seed of the word of God, of the gospel, that is the power for salvation to everyone who believes, Romans 1. And then by faith, we are, having believed this message, reborn, or he says, born again, in verse 23. The next term I want you to be familiar with after the term seed is the actual term for gospel. We saw that in chapter 1 and verse 12. Peter said, you had, this pre- you had the gospel preached to you. And so that term gospel is important for you to understand. It's the Greek word euangelion, or good news. Euangelion, it's the good news. In a nutshell, it's the good news that Christ came down from heaven above to earth below, took on flesh, lived the life that we should have lived, died the death that we should have died in our place and for our sin, and then three days later rose from the dead victoriously conquering sin, the devil, and death on our behalf, and all who place their faith in him have this promise of eternal life. That's the gospel. That is good news. Now, Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones made an interesting observation about this word on the screen. He said, notice that the gospel is news, not advice. The gospel is news, not advice. See, advice is something you get to go accomplish something else. News is something that's already happened, and you simply respond to it. The gospel is news, not advice. This is a proclamation. Now, the term euangelion is actually a military term. It was used by a commander who would announce a victory. If they won a battle, they would send back messengers, angeloi, to announce the victory to the townspeople, to announce the good news. So they would dispatch a herald, and he would go running towards the town to let them know that they had won the victory. And the town people would say, how beautiful are the mountains on the feet of those who bring good news. Euangelion, the victory is won. The battle has been won. Now, if they didn't win the battle... The king would not send back angeloi or uh, messengers. He would send back advisors, and he would send back advice to the townspeople saying, we lost. I need you to station yourselves over here, put some marksmen over here in the town, go put the horses over here. We're going to have to fight for our lives. In a sense, you could say that every other religious system gives advice, and Christianity gives news. You see, every other religious system gives advisors. They say, fight for your life. Horses over here, marksmen over here. You got you to gotta fight for your life. Christianity, though, does not give advice. It gives news. Every other religious system says, here's my advice to go find God. Christianity says, no, I'm God. I've come to find you. This is good news. Peter says, this is what was preached to you. And so the first characteristic of the gospel, with that understood, is that the seed of the gospel is proclamational. It's, I don't even know if that's a word. It's a word for me today. It's proclamational. I kind of made it up. It makes sense, right? It's something that we proclaim. It's a message. We're heralds. We bring good tidings. We proclaim the good news. We have good news. Now, if you bear this good news and you proclaim this news in our day, you'll be called intolerant. Proclaim it anyway. If you proclaim this good news in our day, you will be called bigoted and closed-minded. Proclaim it anyway. If you proclaim this news in our day, you'll be called old-fashioned. Proclaim it anyway. We have good news. Now, the second characteristic about this gospel is found in verse 23. If you go to the next slide, you can see that he also calls this seed imperishable. And so that leads us to the second characteristics 
characteristic of this gospel, the seed of the gospel is imperishable. In a world where everything else is fading, in a world where everything is falling apart all around us, we have something deposited on, in the inside of us that will last forever. That is good news. Uh, Peter goes on to describe this more in depth, starting in verse 3 of chapter 1. He says, In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. This seed is imperishable. This is the news of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. We have a seed on the inside that is absolutely imperishable. Now notice at the end of that passage on the screen that Peter uses this word salvation, and the way that he's using it is a little bit unusual. Maybe uh, you're not accustomed to having that word be used this way, but he's using it in a sense to describe something that hasn't fully happened just yet. Now he's not saying this to suggest in any way that your eternal destiny, the destiny of the true believer, is in question in any way. It is not. Uh, Jesus has told us in John chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, they follow me, I give them eternal life, they will never perish, no one will snatch them out of my hand, my Father who's given them to me is greater than all, no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand, I and the Father are one. But there's a sense in which we have been saved because of the gospel, and we are being saved in light of the gospel, and one day we will be saved forever because of the gospel. There's a uh, picture of this in your workbook on page 43. You'll notice a chart at the bottom right-hand corner of that page that draws out these three different aspects of the word salvation in the Bible. We have been saved, we are being saved, and one day we will be saved. We have been saved from the penalty of sin, we are being saved from the power of sin, and thank God one day we will be saved from the presence of sin. All of these aspects of salvation are important, and God will have all of them for his children. Until this work is complete, the Holy Spirit will continue to do his work of spiritual formation in us because the seed is imperishable. This is good news. The third characteristic of the gospel is that the seed of the gospel is wonderful. Now, I wish I could spend the whole message on this, but Peter says in chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, that all of the Old Testament prophets and even the angels themselves long to look into the truth of the gospel. The word long there is the word epithumia, which which means a deep desire. It's actually translated sometimes as lust in the Bible. It's such a strong desire that these angels have to look into, and they are fascinated by the truth of the gospel. Now, angels are amazing creatures. We don't know that much about them, but we do know that they don't experience death, and because of that, they know a lot because they've been around a really, really long time. So they become very intelligent because they've been around a long time. For those of you who are familiar with the trilogy, The Lord of the Rings, you know how they have these different species that are in that trilogy? One of the species is the elves, and the elves have been around a long time. Well, one, one, there's this one scene where either Aragorn, the human king, or this elf has to carry the main character Frodo on their horse to get somewhere, and the elf says, I'll take Frodo on my horse with me. Why? Because I'm a better rider. And the audience is like, well, of course you're a better rider. You're like 4,000 years old. You've been practicing riding this horse a lot longer than Aragorn. He's just a human being. And so, of course, the elf takes Frodo to the destination. Just like that, angels have been around a really long time. They're very intelligent creatures. But yet still, Peter says, they don't fully understand what you understand. They long to look into the wonderful gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel is amazing. When you, when you read about the wonderful person of Jesus Christ, isn't everything he said wonderful? Isn't every parable wonderful? Isn't every miracle wonderful? Isn't his death, burial, and resurrection wonderful? Isn't everything the Lord Jesus did amazing? The old hymn writer said it well. I stand amazed 
in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wondered how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be, how marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. The seed of the gospel is wonderful. It is wonderful news. He is a wonderful counselor. Now, this is really good news, but I also want you to recognize that in order to embrace and fully understand the good news, the gospel has some bad news baked into it and implied into it as well. Like 1 Peter 1.14 says, I used to have evil desires, and I used to live in complete ignorance. And multiple times in chapters 1 and 2, Peter says that I need to be born again. You'll see that on the screen in chapter 1, verse 23. He says, we need to be born again. Now, I can't make myself be born again. Unlike other religious systems, you can't make yourself a Christian. You could make yourself a Muslim. You could make yourself a Buddhist. You could make yourself a Hindu. You could make yourself an atheist. You can't make yourself a Christian. God says, you have to be born again. Now, that's kind of offensive. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 says that God is building you into like a new spiritual house. Now, let me put it this way. The Bible does not teach that I am a fixer-upper that Chip and Joanna Gaines needs to come visit and get to work on me. No, the Bible teaches me that I need to be completely torn down and the Holy Spirit has to build something entirely new in its place. I remember Paul said in Romans 7, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. In other words, friends, you are not a fixer-upper. No, you are a complete gut job. You might say, how about my foundation? No, that has to come up too. You are a house that needs to be torn down all together with a wrecking ball. And only when there's a smoking, smoldering crater in the ground where your life used to be does God begin to build anything new? Now, that's an offensive message. And that leads us to the next characteristic of the gospel. The seed of the gospel is confrontational. In chapter 2, verses 7 through 8, Peter says this is a stumbling block. This is offensive to people. This is not easy on the ears. This is not what we want to hear. My first grade teacher told me I was a snowflake, and there's nobody like me in the whole world, and I'm just beautiful just the way I am. Well, that's not really what we read about when we hear about the gospel in the New Testament. To embrace this gospel, I have to understand I'm lost. I have to understand I'm sinful. I have to understand there's some dark places in my life. And it's not just about the love of God that he has for me, although he does have great love for me. Many, many people don't struggle with feeling loved. They struggle with loving others. They struggle with loving God. It is not just about receiving his love. It's also recognizing my own sin and how I'm curved in on myself. Now, we have such trouble believing this. Maybe even today, this feels offensive to you. And I, I, that's, this is our culture. We're like that character in the Monty Python sketch. You know that movie, The, Sword of the, the, uh, the Search for the Holy Grail. There's these two uh, swordsmen there, and they're having a fight, you know. And, and the one guy actually lops the other guy's... This is not really appropriate for a sermon, I guess. He, he cuts the whole guy's arm off, and there's blood like sports, you know. You know it, and, and he's acting like it's no big deal. You know this scene, right? And the guy keeps on fighting with one arm. He's like, ah, just put the scratch, you know. Just put the flesh wound, you know. And he just keeps on going like, like, like nothing's wrong. That's kind of how we are as a culture. Ah, there's not, nothing really wrong. Just put a scratch. The prophet Jeremiah says, they dress the wounds of my people though they were, as if they were not serious. It is serious. Isaiah chapter 1 says, you're wounded like from the top of your head to the soles of your feet. Call 911. Sin has a, a drastic effect on us. Romans 8, 7 says, the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile toward God. It doesn't subject itself to the law of God. It's not even able to do so. I can't do good unless God comes and intervenes in my life. Now, this is an offensive message. Uh, Blaise Pascal, the philosopher, said it this way. Asking a sinner to do good is like asking a man with no legs to run a marathon. I don't have the good in me to do. Everything good I do ultimately becomes self-centered, and it's about me again. Uh, trying to be a good person would be like this. If you saw me driving to church today and the road was a little slippery and I, I, 
I somehow drove my car off the road and into a ditch. And then I hooked up a rope to my car, and on the other end of the rope, I had a bunch of kittens. And you see me out there on the side of the road with my rope and my cats, and you go, Pastor Dave, you need a ride? I'm like, no, 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 I'm fine. I got the rope. I got kittens. I don't know if those kittens are going to really, really be able to do what you need them to do, Dave. Maybe you should ask for some help. And I say to you, hey, no problem. I can handle this. I can get these kittens to work. I have a whip. (laughs) There's nothing wrong with exhortation. The problem in the Bible with exhortation is the capability of the one being exhorted. I don't have anything good in me. Romans chapter 7 says the desire is there, but the doing of the good doesn't like flesh itself out. It doesn't work. And so we're, we are all like kittens trying to pull out a heavy car. We're, we all have no legs trying to run a marathon. And so this is confrontational. In your workbook, you'll notice on page 40 and 41, a chart that describes the classic seven deadly sins. This is something for you to consider in your own personal time, just to read this prayerfully and slowly and carefully, asking God to search your heart and asking God, where where does sin show up for me? Where does sin manifest itself in my life? Which one of these seven deadly sins is really pronounced in my heart? See, this is the beginning work of spiritual formation. Eugene Peterson said, In the Christian life, our primary task isn't to avoid sin, it's to recognize sin. Now, I want to be really careful here at this part of the message and avoid a certain danger of something that's called moralism. Now, many people conceive of spiritual formation like it's the path up a mountain that you have to climb. And we all have our own paths that go up the mountain, the the prayer that we do, the Bible reading, the spiritual disciplines, none of those things are bad. But the Bible doesn't teach me that I should do those things in order to achieve some new level of spiritual formation by my own effort. Spiritual growth in the Bible is less a climb up a mountain and more like a slow descent into a cave, into the dark cave of my heart. Spiritual formation, if I could put it this way, is not growth up but down. Spiritual formation is not growth up, but down. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if you're not familiar with this concept. In fact, you might even be looking at the screen going, I don't know if I buy this. Like, uh, you know, this doesn't make any sense. I thought we were progressing here. I thought we were getting better. You are, but it's not the way you think. Growth in Christ, advancing in spiritual maturity, comes as I discover more and more of my own neediness. Because the more mature I become, the more I understand God, the more aware I become of my own sin to the point where we get to be like the Apostle Paul at the end of his life in 1 Timothy who says, I am the chief of sinners. At that point in his life, he was an old man. I am, present tense, the chief of sinners. And so as we grow, we become more aware of our sin. And so I want to address this temptation in the spiritual formation process, and it's the temptation of moralism. Now, I'll put the definition on the screen for you. Moralism is the temptation to perfect oneself in one's own effort to relieve the burden of spiritual failure. It's the attempt of the Christian to use obedience or service or ministry or giving or just being good, all those things, to relieve the burden of feeling like a spiritual failure. So I come to church and I hear a sermon that tells me to love others or love my wife or pray more. And I think, oh, God, I don't do that enough. I, you know what? I need to try again. I need to do better. I need to try harder. But you know what, friends? The try harder button, like most elevator buttons that say this, this, this button should close the door, is busted. Or sometimes it's not even hooked up. The willpower is just not working. I have the will, but I don't have the power to do this in my own effort. This is the trap that the church at Galatia fell into. After they received the gospel, Paul rebukes them sharply. Take a look at chapter 3 of Galatians. It says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I'd like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by believing what you heard? 
Are you so foolish after beginning by means of the Spirit? Are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? No amount of human effort can relieve your burden of spiritual failure. Only Christ can relieve that burden. When we don't measure up to God's standards, when we've failed, we naturally think, i got to try harder next time. But it's in that moment instead that we need to run back to the cross and drink of his grace in a fresh way. So this is the temptation, that we, we want to cover our bad by our own efforts. We see this right at the very beginning in Genesis with Adam and Eve. Our first parents, they provided their own answer to their sin and guilt in Genesis 3. Do you recall that story? Remember the first thing they did after they sinned? They sewed some fig leaves together and loin coverings. And the first human response to something that's wrong is not, oh God, what have we done? What has happened to me? Wouldn't that have been cool? I don't know what the history of redemption would have looked like if that would have been their move, but that wasn't their move. Their instinct, like our instinct, the instinct of moralism, was when we become aware of our badness, we immediately turn inward and immediately turn to ourselves and think, okay, what do I need to do to cover this up? How can I get this right through my own efforts? The problem, the scripture says, is you can't. You can't handle it. No amount of human effort can relieve the burden of failure. Only Christ can relieve that burden. See, this is very different from what we're used to. For those of us like me in the room who kind of lean toward moralism, this is hard. We would prefer to go back under the law. We would prefer to say, you know what, Dave, okay, just try harder. Just just don't do that next time. Do this instead. Don't do that. Do this. You'll get it next time. Try harder. But the gospel, the gospel as the foundation of our spiritual formation has God coming to me tenderly and saying, Dave, you're a failure, Dave. On your own, you need me, Dave. You can't do it anymore. Would you please give up, Dave? You you must learn to abide in me. Here's grace, Dave. Here's mercy, Dave. Here's me, Dave. Don't you want me? Don't you want to be filled with me, Dave? Here's my yoke. My yoke is easy. It's me. Dave, you have no idea what kind of journey I want to take you down. I want to open up all of your heart, Dave. If you would just come to me, I want to search it. I want to, I want to split it open and take you on the journey of a lifetime. I want to take you down, Dave. John Coe, who writes about spiritual formation at Biola, says this is the process of sanctification. He says, the Lord wants to take you down, but it is gonna be the most loving takedown you've ever experienced. And so what do we do? We humble ourselves in repentance. Spiritual formation, like Martin Luther said, is a lifetime of repentance. Now, that's not a popular term nowadays. We think of the guy in the sandwich board and protesting something, repent. What the Bible means by that is we just simply rend our soul because of our sin and and feel about our sin how God feels about our sin. And over and over in Scripture, we learn this is what God wants from me, a broken and contrite spirit. And apart from the grace of God, we are left dead in our sins. In the township of Basking Ridge a number of, well, a few hundred years ago, the great George Whitfield was preaching a very large crusade under the tree Um, and uh, there was thousands of people gathered, and you can read about this. Uh, There was a young boy who had climbed up on an ox cart just to hear Mr. Whitfield preach, and Mr. Whitfield noticed that the boy was there, and then he started noticing about halfway through the message that the boy started crying. And Whitfield stopped his sermon, pointed directly at the boy, and said, young man, why are you crying? And the little boy said, my sin. And Mr. Whitfield said, what do you want? And the boy said, Christ. Just like that little boy, just like the Apostle Paul, God wants us to say, what what a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from the body of this death? And then God wants us to rejoice with Paul when he says, thanks be to God who gives us 
the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but this is the gospel that we must embrace, and it is a gospel not by works at all, but by faith alone. William Holland, another great minister during the Great Awakening, came to Christ when he was reading out loud Luther's commentary on Galatians. And there's this part where Luther wrote these words, quote, what? Have we then nothing to do? No, nothing. But only accept of him who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, unquote. And that's when it hit him. And he writes in his journal in this testimony, quote, And at that moment there came such a power over me as I cannot well describe. My great burden fell off in an instant. My heart was so filled with peace and love that I burst into tears. I almost thought I saw our Savior. My companions, perceiving me so affected, fell on my knees and prayed. When I afterwards went into the street, I could scarcely feel the ground that I tread upon. What was he saying? He was saying, I'm saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And he simply came to the rock of ages. It's a rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Naked I come to thee for dress. Helpless I look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, through his work alone. This is the good news that melts my heart of stone. And without this good news, my heart remains frozen inside of me. And unlike whatever Elsa and Anna have told you, only the gospel can melt a frozen heart. The gospel, it's like a heat laser aimed directly at your heart. And this frozen heart on the inside of me is like an ice ball. And then the gospel hits it, and I hear about the love of God, even for me, even for me. And when the gospel hits it, it melts it, and out comes gushing water of Holy Spirit-driven desires. And when we really get this, our hearts turn into rivers of boiling waters of love come gushing out. 1 Peter chapter 1 says, Now we can live a life that's filled with love because of the power of this gospel. And so this leads us to the next aspect of the seed of the gospel. The seed of the gospel is transformational. Peter says part of this gospel is the call to be holy now. He says, you shall be holy for I am holy. And that's not just a commandment, that's a promise. You shall be holy because I am holy. God is going to take up this effort in your life. The Holy Spirit is going to move on the inside of you and start to unpack his bags. This is called sanctification. Now listen to the words of Bible teacher Jen Wilkins, she says it this way, don't reduce gospel-centered to justification-centered. The good news is more than our freedom from sin's penalty. It is also our progression from sin's power and our ultimate freedom from sin's presence. Justification, sanctification, and glorification are all the gospel. This is good news. Justification is the good news that I'm saved from the penalty of my sin. Sanctification is the good news that I don't have to live in my sin anymore. There's a new power on the inside of me that allows me to say no to ungodliness and unrighteousness. H.B. Charles says it well, quote, It is the will of God to have the Spirit of God use the Word of God to make the children of God begin to look like the Son of God. This victory is now ours, moment by moment. We now have a new life. We are born again. We can now serve God. We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's treasured possession. He's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. But just as we were saved by grace alone through faith alone, my, my thesis here is that we also grow by grace alone through faith alone. In his excellent book, Who Will Deliver Us?, theologian Paul Zoll describes the process of sanctification as simply carrying the good news to the unevangelized territories of our person. Sanctification, he says, is justification extended. In other words, if justification is God's regarding us as perfect through the mirror of the Son's perfection, then sanctification is our receiving that same regard more palpably and with larger and larger extension throughout our lives and the complex geography of our soul. And this process is a lifelong process. And the gospel reaches to darker places within ourselves than today we may not even know exist. In other words, spiritual formation occurs not from moral effort, but from being reminded of how deep and dark and sinful I am 
and then remembering that God loves me anyway, even despite my sin. See, the gospel tells me that my sin is, is even more than I realize, and God's love is also more than I could ever imagine. This is good news. But that also means growing in grace requires grace. God saves you by his grace, then he grows you by his grace, and one day he will present you faultless before his throne by his grace. And as I go deeper and deeper into the cave of my heart, I allow his spirit to do a work of cleansing there. And I repent and I believe afresh. And I repent and I believe afresh. And I repent and I believe afresh. Spiritual growth is backwards, or as I said earlier, it's not up, it's down. Now, maybe this is like a new concept for you. Maybe you've never thought of it quite this way before. Maybe, maybe it sounds kind of counterintuitive, but I assert that this spiritual principle is actually not that unique, and it's not that counterintuitive if you just think about how it shows up in other areas of our lives. If you've ever been to school, you know that the more you learn about a subject, the more you realize how much there is that you don't actually know. Or, if we want to keep nature as our theme here as we are in this series, before anything comes to life in the spring, it first dies in the fall and the winter. That's the principle. The more mature Christians are not those who begin to rely on Jesus less. Rather, they are those who are growing in their reliance on Jesus more and more and more as they die every day. Now, this is really difficult for us, and the reason is because it goes against the grain of the human tendency which seeks to exalt itself. We like the story of, I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps, thank you very much. That's like the American dream. It's not the gospel, though. I don't mean this offensively. We love stories that have unlikely heroes, like, we like to root for the little guy. I mean, the Bengals yesterday. We love that narrative arc. Both number one seeds knocked out. We love those stories. We're drawn to them. Rags to riches. Rocky gets a shot at the title. We love that character that goes from zero to hero. The ivy has grown up further over the wall so that now it doesn't say we preach Christ crucified. It just says we. We love ourselves. That's the problem. And what I'm trying to tell you is I don't mean to be offensive, but the Bible doesn't have that character arc for you. The Bible's not about you. It's about Christ. There's only one hero in the Bible. And the fact that that bothers you is the problem. I want to be the hero. I want to be in the middle. But when I'm sitting on the throne, instead of worshiping around the throne, my life doesn't work. I need to find my place revolving, orbiting around the throne of God who's worthy of all my devotion. And I, I, it's just not about me. And it's not about us. There's great love. There's great purpose. There's great mercy for you in following God. He does love you, and that love is deeply satisfying to you. But we must also realize he's the hero. Uh, the gospel doesn't begin with me. It begins with him. It doesn't end with me. It ends with him. The, boss, the gospel is not, Dave, you're so great. The gospel is, God is so great. And when God frees me from myself, to love him and to serve him and to put him at the center, that's when my life works best, when I'm not living for myself, when I'm living for him, because that's how he designed me to live. And to the degree that I embrace him and gaze upon his beauty and live for him, I get transformed into his image more and more and more. And I become this royal priesthood, this holy nation, God's treasured possession, that I might declare the praises of him who called me out of darkness and into his marvelous light, because it's all about his glory, which leads us to the last characteristic of the gospel. The seed of the gospel is doxological. The word doxological just refers to the glory that is due to God and God alone. He will not share his glory with me or anyone. You say, Pastor Dave, where do we find this in the text? It's actually right at the beginning. 
Chapter 1, verses 3 through 12 is one big, long, humongous, run-on sentence in the Greek. But Karen Jobes, in her commentary on 1 Peter, points out that there's one main clause in that sentence, and everything else is subordinate to that main clause. You know what the one main clause is? Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the main problem with me is I don't live my life in my sin how I was designed to live for the glory of God. I live my life for myself. And the gospel turns that upside down. Or I should say right side up. As through Christ I can live again how I was designed to live for his glory. And this is because of the gospel. All the glory being due his name. The seed of the gospel is doxological. The seed of the gospel is proclamational. The seed of the gospel is imperishable. The seed of the gospel is wonderful. The seed of the gospel is confrontational. The seed of the gospel is transformational. The seed of the gospel is doxological. We preach Christ crucified. Are we doing that? As the worship team comes, let me remind you of the famous words of the old hymn writer who said this. Down at the cross where my Savior died, down where for cleansing from sin I cried, there to my heart was the blood applied, glory to his name. I am so wondrously saved from sin. Jesus so sweetly abides within there at the cross where he took me in. Glory to his name. Oh, precious fountain that saves from sin, I am so glad I have entered in. There Jesus saves me and keeps me clean. Glory to his name. Come to this fountain, so rich and sweet. Cast thy poor soul at thy Savior's feet. Plunge in today and be made complete. Glory to his name. Glory to his name. Glory to his name. And Heavenly Father, how grateful we are that even in our darkness, your light shines brightly. Even in our sin, your grace superabounded. Even when we focused the mirror and the attention all on ourselves, you found a way to display your love and your mercy and your grace to us and to save us from ourselves and from our sin. We invite you now to do your sanctifying work and to shine the light into the cave of our hearts and show us today, even today, where I need to embrace the gospel in a fresh sense and remind myself of your mercy and orient my life towards you and living around you and worshiping around your throne, not sitting in your chair. God, you're worthy of our every devotion. We invite you, Christ, to live through us. We promise to give you all the praise and glory in Jesus' name.